do all the points of my message this morning, so I hope you were paying attention. I don't really have to say much. You know, it's interesting. You're up here sitting on this chair when there's music playing and the subwoofer's going, and you feel the message uh, throughout your body. It's pretty exciting. Um, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Uh, it's good to see you. My name is Stu. Uh, Stu Kenneborough is my last name. It's Kenneborough. And... Um, uh, I'm a good friend of Tony's. I know many of you from uh, being involved with uh, this church over the years. And uh, so Tony reached out and asked if I'd be willing to to kind of talk this morning and to kind of kick off this series. And I was very happy to be able to say yes. Um, as the video sort of indicated, it's a series about grace. And... Um, you know, grace is one of those really interesting terms. Like the last time I spoke here, I spoke about love. And it's like, okay, well, you know, what haven't you heard about love? Well, what haven't you heard about grace, you know? And so the idea would be, you know, to, to try to, to, to help you, you know, see these, these, uh, these Christian terms, these things that we use as believers and as churchgoers over and over again in, in a way that will, will help you and will kind of, uh, give you some direction in, in your lives. And so that's what I, I hope to be able to do today. Because, you know, when we got grace, you know, we, I think most of you would say, I, I know what grace is. Man, I mean, you know, grace is pretty pretty common term. When we sing about it, you know, grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Um, churches don't sing that anymore, of course. But uh, uh, us old guys, you know, we remember we remember that hymn. Uh, we say grace, you know, you go into, uh, you know, get, having a meal someplace and even in public places, which is kind of cool. People will bow their heads and they'll say grace and your kids all learn God is great. God is good. We'll just thank him for our food, that kind of thing. We recognize it as a character quality in God, God's grace. We talk about that. Uh, this scripture, grace is the very character of God's nature, abounding and overflowing outwardly in acts of pity, mercy, compassion, and liberal giving. Grace is one of those concepts we hear about pretty regularly, but I think what we're going to try and help you see over these next four weeks here at the church is there's more to the concept of grace that will affect your lives that you can employ. So let's start at the very beginning, and we'll talk about what's a definition of grace. And a lot of people over the years in church have probably heard different little ways to think of the, you know, the definition of grace, uh, God's riches at, yeah, at Christ's expense, God, God's riches at Christ's expense. Here's a, here's a definition. Uh, it's the love and mercy given to us by God because God desires us to have it, not necessarily because of anything we have done to earn it. So there's a lot of stuff involved in that idea of grace. And we'll come back to that. You don't have to write that down, but there's also a very, there's a two-word definition that I've used over the years. Unmerited favor is another kind of way to describe grace. Um, Ephesians 1.7 says it this way, He is so rich in kindness and grace that He purchased our freedom with the blood of His Son and forgave us our sins. So in that verse kind of comes the topic for what we're going to be kind of referring to today. There's this idea of grace meaning or being complete, being 
uh, interconnected with the concept of forgiveness. And, and, and a lot of Christians, if you ask them about grace, that would be their definition would be tied to that idea of forgiveness. Today, we're going to go a little, be, a little bit beyond that and see how his grace, like in the little video there, teaches us how to live on a day-to-day basis. How many of you all know the, the name Matthew West? And if I give you a clue, it's a, he's a Christian singer. Have you heard him before? I will confess that um, I was not that familiar with him. Um, this uh, last couple of weeks as I was sort of working on this message and I was looking for just different ways to approach this concept of grace, um, I, I, got, I, I found him and I found some of his music. And, and, and actually, before I, I get into this, I have to tell you, he's a really great guy <laughs> and his music is really inspiring. So if you have a, uh, you know, one of those, you know, fancy phones where you can look up, you know, music from people that you don't already know, whatever that, you know, service might be, um, whatever the latest service might be, Matthew West would be one to check out. But Matthew West wrote a song entitled Grace Wins, W-N-S. And the story behind it is where I kind of wanted to kick off things this morning. Apparently, Matthew West likes to in, 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 uh, get people who are his, people who had his concerts or people who know him to kind of um, tell him stories about their lives, uh, whether or not they have bearing on the songs that he may have written. He just likes to incorporate that and, and to use that in, into the, the music that he writes. And so this story is that a, a man had been to one of his concerts not because he liked Matthew West. The guy was an absolute wreck of a guy, drug addict, uh, lots of trouble with the law, lots of trouble, period. Everything he started, he, he, he basically couldn't complete. And his mother had said, if you go to this Matthew West concert, I will pay you money. Um, and so he said, well, okay, I need the money, so I'll go to the concert. And so there's a lesson in that, too, probably for another message. But, uh, uh, but he went to the concert. And at the concert, Matthew West had, has done a song, and uh, Tim, you probably know this song called Hello, My Name Is, which is a really kind of an interesting song, um, uh, and I'm not going to go down that rabbit trail right now, but there's a, a great video about it on, on, online that you should, you should check out. It's really kind of an encouraging song, Hello, My Name Is. But this young man who was at this concert heard that song, and it touched him like nothing had touched him before, and he recognized that even though he was a total wreck and a failure in the eyes of himself and everybody else that he knew, that perhaps that there was something to this idea that in God's eyes he was not a wreck and that he could be redeemed and he could, find, he could be useful. And so he, after that concert, uh, of, you know, had just a, 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 a real cathartic, cathartic moment and he decided he was going to change the way he lived. And as part of that, he got in touch with Matthew West and told him the story of how he felt like he was completely unworthy, that there was, you know, no way that, you know, he could live and continue to live um, apart from um, having God's influence in his life. 
And so Matthew West heard the story, was touched by it, and wrote this song, Grace Wins. Here's some of the lyrics in Grace Wins. In my weakest moment, I see you shaking your head in disgrace. I can read the disappointment written all over your face. Here come those whispers in my ear saying, who do you think you are? Looks like you are on your own from here because grace can never reach that far. But in the shadow of the shame, beat down by all the blame, I hear you call my name saying it, it's not over. But my heart starts to beat so loud, now drowning out the doubt. I'm down, but I'm not out. There's a war, and this is a a chorus that repeats over and over. There's a war between guilt and grace. And they're fighting for a sacred space. But I'm living proof grace wins every time. Words can't describe the way it feels when mercy floods a thirsty soul. A broken side begins to heal, and grace returns to what guilt has stole. Now, I think those are powerful words. And uh, done in vocally with the great music that Matthew West wrote, it's a very compelling song. But the idea that this, there's this space between guilt and grace, and it's at war, and grace wins every time. I just want you to remember those lines. If you don't remember anything else that I say this morning, we're going to come back to that a couple of times. Grace wins every time. So does God's grace mean only forgiveness? I mean, in that case, there was an element of forgiveness that that this gentleman had 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 to come to understand. But is there something more to this antidote for sin? Would God leave us alone in our rage, our addictions, and our isolation? And if you think about that, try to internalize that for a minute. When you feel as though you have failed, when you feel as though things have not gone well, sometimes your worst enemy is yourself. Because you look at what you've done and you are you 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 live it over and over again and you complete you completely overwhelm yourself with this feeling that you're not worthy and you're guilty. And, and that in and of itself would be enough to just tear you up on a day-to-day basis. Um, but uh, the answer is no. God's not going to leave you alone in that. He's not going to leave us to ourselves any more than he would tell a beggar, oh, go and be filled uh, and not actually provide for that beggar. So here's two important points to remember from that. Grace forgives, but it also guides. That was in that little video that we saw in the beginning. Set aside the question of heaven and hell after we die. Think about heaven and hell as we live. His grace is available to lead and guide us right now. He knows that if we focus on our troubles, if we focus on our failures, then we allow an opening for temptation and sin in our life. So if we wait until we've sinned to call upon him, we've squandered this concept of grace that is a constant and abiding, living with God kind of a grace. If we wait until we're at our worst moment to say, all is lost, please rescue me, then we've left, we've, we've, not given him, we're not given ourselves the opportunity as little things happen 
to turn and say, man, this is not working right, or I'm confused here. Can you come, can you come and, and, and give me help? And I know you live that way on a daily basis. I hear you, every, the things that you say. And many of us are the same way. Every day you turn things over to God so that you don't have this huge, heavy suitcase of stuff that you've got to carry with you for such a long period of time. You're giving him your carry-on baggage, right? Okay. There's a travel thing for you. Uh, grace restores, but it also guards. It also instructs us to deny ungodly ways and teaches us how to, how to live sensibly, how to live upright, what the godly um, life and decisions would be in this present age. So the scripture teaches that we're saved by grace. And the more we read the New Testament, the more all-encompassing that grace becomes. The Bible presents a grace that continues to reach into our lives. So our text today, and the one that we're going to kind of focus on for the rest of our talk, is, is, is the, brings forth this idea, Titus 2, 11 through 14. If you have your Bibles or your electronic scripture reference dealy bobbers with you, Titus 2, 11 through 14. And it introduces us to a grace that is familiar and also a little bit unfamiliar. So the Apostle Paul, let me set the setting for Titus 2. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was writing to a young pastor whose name was Titus. And Titus had traveled with Paul. Titus had been trained by Paul. And, and Paul had great affection for Titus. And for he called him even at once, my true child in faith. And here's what Paul taught uh, Titus uh, about the scope of God's grace. And here we're starting in verse 11. For the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people. And we are instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God while we look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our, of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be revealed. He gave his life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us and make us his very own people, totally committed to doing good deeds. So that's our scripture for today, and we're going to kind of unpack that as we talk further. In this passage, if you look at that first verse, grace is connected to the instructions in verse 12 by the simple conjunction. There's my English language training coming out, conjunction. The conjunction is the word and. His grace has been revealed and we are instructed by virtue of this grace to do certain things. That's the connection there. That's how we can know that grace is engaged in more than just that one thing in the beginning of the verse, but it's connected to the rest of the verse. Most believers are familiar with the idea that grace brings salvation. It's in a lot of the hymns that we sing. But not, how, not many have heard it as grace that teaches us to say no. No to what? Well, 
no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live with wisdom and righteousness and to pursue godly devotion in this present age, as that verse points out. So let's, let's look at the four key points of this verse. The first, we don't want to overlook it, grace brings salvation. Yeah, we're talking this morning about what grace does beyond that, but um, the importance of this salvation through grace is impossible to overemphasize. In fact, it's the very heart of the gospel. It's the essence of the gospel. We would never even have a desire to seek salvation if it were not for the fact that grace draws us to the Father. Have you ever seen a dead person? Have you ever seen a dead person? I mean, there's that movie that's, you know, where the young boy says, I see dead people. That was different, and that's not what we're talking about today. We're talking about a real dead person, and I know this is kind of a gross thing to say, but the truth is only about 5% of the people in the United States have ever seen a dead person. And for them, most of the time, it would, it's, it's going to amount to two times in their whole life, and it will be when somebody is in a casket at a funeral. That's when people see dead people. Now, others may see that more. Some of you may be exposed to it on a regular basis if you work in a hospital. I know my daughter works at a hospital. I think, I think every shift that she goes in, she sees dead people. She deals with that on, a, on a every shift that she goes in because she's one of the last people that get, gets called in to try to bring uh, restore their breathing before they pass away. And so the point I'm trying to get at is here, one thing is the same about all these bodies, all these dead people. They have an ability to do absolutely nothing. You cannot ask them to do something. You couldn't expect them to move or to change or to, to do anything. They are incapable of that because they are dead. And this is our condition spiritually before God's grace works in our lives to draw us to him. Paul teaches us in Ephesians 2, we were dead in our transgressions and sin, and it is by God's grace that we were made alive. If you think about that, you think about the idea that when our condition, being dead before his grace allowed us to be drawn to him and revived, gives you an idea of how critical this grace is. Without it, well, we would still be dead. This is the starting part in our life in Christ, but it's just the start. The news gets better. So that was the first point. Second point, grace instructs us to say no to godless living and sinful pleasure. Godless living, sinful pleasure. Let's talk about those. What is godless living? Well, most people think of godless living as sort of um, living sort of by and around and through and without and with and who knows what God. In other words, sometimes yes, sometimes no. The idea behind the word is godless living in the original Greek connected to the idea of pollution and profanity. 
It's not a condition of merely being without God. This is where it gets significant. It's an attitude of open and blatant opposition to God. That's what godless living is. The godless man is not just an atheist or an unbeliever. The godless man is openly impious, wicked, and profane. The godless man is not the same one who professes one thing and lives another. It's the one who shows open uh, opposition to God. So thinking in Scripture about an example of this, I was reminded of, of Daniel. You all know the story of Daniel. And, 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 and most of us know Daniel about at the time when he's going into the lion's den, right? And how his faith protected him in that. But the real story of Daniel takes place long before that. And, and here it is, just in a nutshell. There was a king named, anybody remember? Nebuchadnezzar, very good. Boy, Tony's teaching you guys right, or somebody did. He was, he captured some of the most impressive men from the nation of Judah with one intent in mind. He wanted to change the culture of Judah. And he knew that the way to do it was to take these impressive men and train them differently so that they would no longer be men of God. And then they would help to change the entire culture of Judah. He knew that he could not fight against them physically because that would be a fight that would never end. But if he could adjust their way of thinking and change their way of thinking, he could win. And this is how cultures were um, subsidized and overturned throughout biblical history. So um, as a devout believer in God, he was placed in a position that was openly opposite to God. He was forced to go to a school where it was complete secular environment, and they attempted to create uh, a replace Christian worldview with humanism and with secularism. He was tempted with the finest foods that only the king could eat and all kinds of other treats and special events and special things to try to tempt him with that lifestyle of the rich and famous. This was not just to pamper him, but to get him to turn his way from God and focus it elsewhere, to become opposite to God. All of this was an attempt to get him to oppose God, to live a godless life, which is where we come back to our verse. And that was his attempt to try to get victory, Nebuchadnezzar's attempt to get victory. Was it successful with Daniel? No, it wasn't. And that's the great part of that story. Um, uh, that Daniel is a great example of how you can say no to godless living. The second issue that we brought up there was the one about sinful pleasures. Now, at first, this seems kind of self-explanatory. Sinful pleasures. We are to say no to sin in which we find pleasure. But there's a lot more involved in that. First thing is that any pleasure that is in itself a direct violation of one of the Ten Commandments, that would be sinful. That makes sense to you? So if Ten Commandments, we know what those are. Anything that you do that's in direct violation of that, there's a sin. 
there's a sin. But what's the pleasure part of it? How could you get pleasure from doing something that's like that? Well, the second is any pleasure which takes and keeps the heart from God. And that's sinful. And that can be fatal to the soul. Ezekiel 30, 20, 36, 26 says this, And I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And Proverbs 23, 26 says it this way, O oh my son, give me your heart. May your eyes take delight in following my ways. If we seek pleasures that turn our heart from God and not in the direction that those scriptures were talking about, we're on a dangerous path. But the, the Bible says there can be pleasures in sin. That's terrible. I mean, it wouldn't it be great if sin gave us no pleasure? The likelihood is that we would, li- we would probably not sin if it was painful every time you sinned. But unfortunately, that's not the case. We know this from our own experience. The Bible also says sin's pleasure is what? Only for a season. That's right. And that's the thing to remember. On those times when you or someone you know may be dealing with sin that's giving them some sort of encouragement, some sort of pleasure, to help them to try and see or for you to try and understand this is only for a season. And once that season is over, it's big time over. Luke 15. Anybody know when you say Luke 15, the reference to that? That's the story of the prodigal son. Think about this. We read of a loving father and his sin who learned this lesson the hard way. So we all know the story of the prodigal son, right? I don't have to go over it in a huge detail, but here's a young man who decided that he wanted to experience worldly pleasures. He wanted to experience the pleasure of sin. And so he told his father, give me my inheritance. I'm going to go off and I'm going to do this. And he did that for a season. And then what happened at the end of that season? His life was upside down. He had no more money. He had no more friends. He had no more food, except what he could steal from the pigs, right? He had no... His, that season of pleasure of sin had ended. And so he had no choice but to go to his father. And he believed, like the man who went to the concert for the Matthew West concert, he believed that even if he came back to the father, the father would want nothing to do with him. Maybe he would give him a job as one of his servants. Because even the servants, remember, ate better than he was eating in the pigsty. And so when he got back to his father, what did he discover? The father welcomed him with open arms. So, This is the idea that a repentant heart can bring around true repentance on the part of a person who turns from sin and lives for God.
So those were the first two points. The third point in this scripture is where we start talking about this idea of being living with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God. So let's unpack that a little bit. These are used a lot in Christian theology. Let's make sure we understand it. So, when we in Scripture say foolish and wisdom, when we use those terms, we need to understand that Scripture normally is talking about them not as an intellectual issue. It is a moral issue. A fool or somebody who is wise, there is morality attached to that. Let's talk about that just for a minute. Foolishness is often thought of as just making stupid decisions. Decisions that don't take facts into account and doing something that's wrong. But Psalm 14.1 says this, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. The fool does not recognize God and lives a life of evil. However, the wise man knows God and obeys him. So the contrast there is that when we talk about living wise lives, we're not talking about just making smart decisions. We're talking about living a life that takes into account all of this wisdom, all of the knowledge that you would have and applies it to your life. In the same way, wisdom is way more than knowledge. One can know a lot of information and still be a fool. It's impossible, though, to be wise and to be ignorant. So, wisdom is the right application of knowledge. Throughout Solomon's teaching, and he was the wisest man who ever lived, this is at the heart of nearly everything he is teaching. To be wise, you need to apply this to your life. It needs to be part of who you are, not just up here, but here, right? Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If we're going to live wise lives, we must obey and live according to the word of God. So in the same way, righteousness is often defined as being morally justifiable or right. right? If I say you're righteous, it means you're right. You're morally justifiable. But the Bible's standard of human righteousness is Something a little more than that. The Bible standard of righteousness is God's own perfection. Think about that for a second. If somebody's going to live a righteous life, think about being compared to God's righteousness, God's, God's um, idea of what perfection is. Are you going to be able to measure up to that? Well, every attribute, every attitude, every behavior, every word, it describes our conduct. The Bible says a righteous person is just or right, holding to God and trusting in Him. So, the last part of that verse is talks about devotion to God. Well, we think we understand what that means, right? It implies ardent affection for God. If you're going to be devoted to God, you have affection for Him. You want to be with Him. You want to please Him. A heart yielded to Him with reverence, faith, and piety in everything that you do. In each of these points, 
there's a decision that the believer makes to live or act in a specific way. That's the heart of this of what we're talking about. Left to ourselves, we would never choose to live with wisdom, righteousness, or devotion to God. This is the sad part. Listen to Mark 7, 21 through 23. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. And there's that whole idea of foolishness being connected with things that are way more than just being stupid. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Come from inside. Well, from this, we might conclude that there's no hope. If it's coming from inside, what can I expect? What can I do? Where is the, where is the hope? And yet we come back to our topic for today, the idea of grace. Romans 3, 23 and 24 says this. How many have anybody memorized that? Tim, you want to try it? You want to try it? For no, no, that's fine. <laughs> Keep going. No, no, you know the right stuff. Yeah, for, for, for grace you have been saved through faith. Not of works, lest any man should boast. I don't know the other one. That's fine. <laughs> Here it is in the verse that I've got. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in His grace, freely makes us right in His sight. He did this through Jesus Christ when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. That's the New Living Translation, which some of you know, I, I like that one a lot. But if you memorize it in NAS or something, it is, by grace you've been saved through faith and not of your own. Grace gives us hope and a future. That's the last part of this verse, Titus verse we're talking about. Life in Christ is not meant to be a desperate fight against sin not even a narrow focus on godly living. In verse 13, we see that God's grace, what does it say? Fills us with hope. It doesn't just offer hope out there and we scramble to try to get it. It fills us with hope. Hope for this life and for the next. What is this wonderful day that the verse talks about? It says, what's meant by wonderful day, great um, glory of our great God and Savior? Well, this is this time when the appearance of Christ in glory. Now, we know that Christ has appeared on the earth before, right? Christ has come first time as a baby, as a man, as a human. We know that he appeared the next time after spending his life on earth after, when does he appear? After the tomb, he appears to several different people. His disciples, he appears and he, and he has a mission during that time. But then we know that he is going to appear again. Amen. In future events, this is the one that's referred to as the blessed hope. That's the term for that phrase in the New Testament. 
<coughs> it will be appearing of the glory, indicating the coming of Jesus in power. This is what everybody was kind of expecting the first time. He didn't come that way the first time. That's why they were so sad, so unhappy about his first time. He wanted them to come and, you know, do what he's going to do the second time, the first time. That wouldn't have been good for all of us. But the second time that he comes, he comes in his glory. This time will be the time that the saints have cried out for. Remember when we studied um, uh, the end times, there's the, in, in, the, in the throne room, there are the saints under the throne. And what are they doing? What are they crying out for all the time, over and over? Justice. When are you going to come and fix this? When are we going to see justice? Right? This is being repeated over and over again. This is what they were crying out for, the reckoning when God makes everything that is wrong right. Grace is the path that leads to this eternity with Christ. Grace not only forgives our sin, grace teaches us how to live a life that is no longer captive to sin. That's the hope for us. Now, remember that song that I read you the lyrics to in the beginning? Remember the title of the song? Grace Wins. Listen to these words that come towards the end of the song. For the prodigal son, grace wins. For the woman at the well, grace wins. For the blind men and the beggar, grace wins. For always and forever, grace wins. For the lost out on the street, grace wins. For the worst part of you and me, grace wins. For the thief on the cross, grace wins. For the world that is lost, grace wins every time. See, too many peop- uh, believers are stuck in kind of an unhealthy pattern. They choose sin, it's bad. After that, they hear a voice in our head that says, you've sinned, you're terrible, you're not good enough, and it drags us deeper into despair. That's the voice of Satan working in your life. He whispers these enticements before our sin, and he says, you should sin. You should do this thing you shouldn't do because it's going to bring you pleasure. And you do it. And then afterwards he says, see, you're not good enough. You're a bad person. You might as well keep on sinning. God wants us to learn from our pasts and say, like John 8 says, go and sin no more. And we think, how could I possibly do that? Scripture teaches us. We can do that. Titus just showed us how to do that through grace. This is grace. God is not only ready to forgive, he is eager to teach us. He will show us the path and correct our steps, not by insisting on obedience, but by revealing our hearts, by helping us to understand how should we should, how we should live. Whether it's in salvation or it's teaching us how to live, this is the simple truth to this morning's message. Grace wins.
Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you have provided us an opportunity to know you, to live a life which gives us the opportunity to win. And we can't win on our own. We know that. We win when we work with you, when we live our lives for you. And we do that through your grace. And so we are so thankful that you have come and provided us not only the scripture to teach us how to live, but the essence and the heart of this scripture, which is based around your sacrifice and your grace to encourage us and to provide us a a way of hope. So thank you, Father, for all of this. And I thank you for all of these people. In the name of Jesus, amen.